Hope Church. How we doing? Good, just good, huh? Not great or anything like that. You excited to be here? I'm excited to be here, man. I think I've told you this before. My kids tell me at my age I should be excited to be anywhere, right? But I'm excited to be with you and to be sharing the truth of God's Word. God's Word is filled with truth, right? We've said this before, and it bears repeating, that we believe here at Hope Church that the Bible, these 66 books that we have here, it is the infallible Word of God. It is inerrant with regard to doctrine and teaching. That's what we believe. Now, one of the foundational convictions that came out of the Reformation is a doctrine we refer to as sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, Latin for scripture alone. And this doctrine quite simply says scripture is our highest authority in life. Scripture is sufficient, and in it we find all truth necessary for our salvation and for spiritual life. And, and, Scripture is the authority by which all other authorities are to be judged. Remember, friends, we must see the world through the lens of Scripture in order to identify truth. Now, you guys know that I like to begin with, you know, these goofy little celebrations, right? The national or international days that kind of make you chuckle, right? Like National Towel Day or National Paper Airplane Day. Those happened this past week. But I'm not going to do that. Wait, maybe I just did. Regardless, regardless, friends, I, I, I am convinced this morning that it is necessary instead to focus our attention on something else that happened this week. As you are all aware, a young man entered an elementary school in Texas and senselessly killed 19 children and two adult teachers. A, an absolute tragedy, a tragedy to be sure, a crisis in which we look to God and we wonder, we cry out to Him, and it causes us to ask questions, the kind of questions that we've been studying over the past several weeks. God, do you care? God, how can this be fair? This doesn't make sense. And honestly, friends, this is the kind of thing that had our friend Habakkuk asking these very questions. Habakkuk saw sin and injustice. He saw violence around him. And he didn't understand. Was the killing of these people this past week, was that sin? Was that wrong? Was that just? Was it fair? Do we understand? No, we don't understand. But what have we learned so far from our friend Habakkuk in this conversation that he had with God? 
Well, we've learned, friends, that God does, in fact, care. And we've learned that He does hear us when we pray. He he hears us when we cry out. And He will answer our prayers. We saw how God answered the prayers of Habakkuk, right? Habakkuk prayed that God would intervene in the sin and injustice within the nation of Judah. And God answered that prayer. But he did not answer it in the way that Habakkuk wanted or expected. See, God used this pagan nation of Babylon, this this nation that was actually more wicked than Judah. He used them as his agent of justice to bring judgment on the nation of Judah. Make no mistake, friends, God does care. And he will answer our prayers, but not always in the way that we want. He will answer them according to his perfect plan. But you know, his perfect plan does not always make sense. Habakkuk discovered that. You know, God using this this, this more wicked nation to bring judgment on the nation of Judah, that didn't make sense. That didn't seem fair. But who are we to decide what is fair, what is right? And when we look at this school shooting, it may seem like God doesn't care because it doesn't seem like that's fair. And it causes us to ask these very difficult questions. But again, what have we learned from Habakkuk to this point? Don't don't turn away from God. Don't don't turn away from God. Don't turn your back on God. Turn toward God and ask him these difficult questions. And then, as Habakkuk told us, we wait. We wait for his answers, and we wait expectantly, and we wait patiently. We wait to see how God is going to answer, knowing, knowing that he may... He may correct our thinking with his answer. We still may not understand. We still may not get it. But that's okay. Because we know God. Just like Habakkuk knew God. He knew that God was the eternal God of creation. He knew that he was perfectly holy, the God of the cosmos, and that his plan is always perfect, even if it doesn't make any sense. So where does that leave us today? Well, I'll be honest with you, friends. My plan was to kind of move on to chapter 3 of Habakkuk and look at this beautiful psalm that he wrote in chapter 3 and just kind of skip over the end of chapter 2. Because the end of chapter 2 is kind of, it's kind of messy, it's kind of ugly. But you know, as we learned this past week, the world is sometimes pretty ugly and pretty messy. And we must look at it, and we must judge it according to Scripture. Now, I've titled this sermon, Is God Right? And I struggled with this. I wanted to keep in the whole question idea. Is God right? Is God just? Is God right? Is God just? I I kept going back and forth. 
actually Dawn finished the slide before I changed my mind completely, but is God right? And I want to keep with these questions, this theme that we've been in, and I want us to look for a moment at the end of chapter 1 and into the beginning of chapter 2. We looked at that last week, and there we read these descriptions of the sin and injustice of Babylon. And God makes it clear that this is wrong, this sin and injustice, this is not right. And he also tells Habakkuk that the Babylonians, they are in fact responsible for their sin. Now, just because they were getting away with it at the time, that didn't mean that God didn't see. And it didn't mean that they weren't going to be judged for their sin. They were in God's timing. And then everything that we see that follows in chapter 2 is really confirmation of what God had already told Habakkuk, specifically reinforcing the promise of chapter 2, verse 4, where God says, See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. And we really kind of dissected that last week, talked about what it meant to live by faith. But I want us to look for a moment at this term puffed up. What, is, what does that make you think of when you read that? It's pride, right? It's pride. And the Babylonians were very proud. They were, they were proud of their accomplishments. They were proud of all the destruction that they left in their path. And this pride really became their downfall. See, their pride manifested itself in five different ways. Greed, injustice, violence, exploitation, and idolatry. And what we see in verses 6 through 20 of chapter 2 are five warnings, five woes that correspond to those sins. But you know, these warnings are not just for the nation of Babylon. No, they could have been applied to the nation of Judah as well. And friends, those same woes, those same warnings apply today. So let's take some time and let's, let's read from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2, you guys are going to be experts on finding Habakkuk now, right? Yeah. Beginning at verse 6, God says this. Will not all of them, meaning of course the nations that Babylon had destroyed, will not all of them taunt him, of course meaning Babylon, will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. So this first warning really is about greed. You know, the Babylonians had taken a lot of things that 
didn't belong to them. They destroyed nations and people to gain resources, the resources that they wanted. Does that sound at all familiar? It should because it's going on today. And look, Babylon wasn't the first nation to do this and they will not be the last. They were proud of their accomplishments. They were proud of the destruction and this, this theft. But you know, God makes it clear that he knows how to deal with evil nations. Yeah, God had allowed Babylon to plunder and act as an instrument of his justice, but in his timing, they would pay. They would become prey just as they had preyed upon so many other nations. They would eventually face judgment. And friends, the same is true today. Not just for nations, but for individuals, for the greedy who steal to make themselves wealthy. What they have taken will eventually be taken from them. They will be judged. The second woe deals with injustice. Verse 9, it says, Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. So this, this woe, this warning is against anyone who seeks security. Really, it's talking about security by treating others unjustly. Security by the means of injustice. The image of uh, a nest on high is that of an eagle. An eagle builds its nest so high that it thinks it's safe from predators. Well, the Babylonians, they built a city with huge walls, thinking that their enemies would not be able to penetrate them and reach them. And friends, there is temptation today to want to feel secure. Everybody wants security, right? But security at the expense of others? Security by unjust gain? That's no security at all. As God says, it will be your ruin, and by it you will forfeit your very life. Judgment. Third woe is against violence. Verse 12 says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. There's that word again too. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? That the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. Again, the warning is against violence, violence and injustice in order to gain power. And power is something that people have sought since the very beginning of time. And there are many, including the Babylonians, that have shed blood, innocent blood, to gain that power. Do we see that going on today? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
All you got to do is look to the Ukraine. Innocent people being slaughtered in the name of power. Now, you may be saying, whew, you know, glad I'm not violent. This one doesn't really apply to me. But remember, it's gaining power by violence and injustice. Are there nonviolent things that we do to undermine others in order to gain power? Yeah. Yeah. Happens all the time. You know, maybe maybe you make someone look bad, you know, so you get the promotion. It happens. Happens all the time. But what God tells us is this. He is the only one with real power in this world. As it says, all of our labor is just fuel for the fire. It all comes to nothing. You know, the Babylonians thought they were building an empire that would last forever. It didn't. It lasted for a while until God judged them. But whatever power, friends, we try to grab in this life will just as surely pass. Only God has the power. And God will judge violence and injustice. Remember, it says, Someday the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory and the power of God. That's our hope. That's our hope. The next woe deals with drunkenness and exploitation. Verse 15, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin until they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup of the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. It's a clear, a clear rebuke, not only against drunkenness, but, but exploitation. Exploitation. Those who promote things like drunkenness, for the purpose of using others. In this situation, it speaks explicitly to sexual sins. But see, drunkenness deprives us of our ability to think clearly. It deprives us of our ability to make good decisions. And, friends, it leads to other sins, like lust and sexual sin, and violence. Do we see drunkenness and sexual sin and violence in our world today? Unfortunately, those seem to be the hallmarks of our society. And it is for these sins and others that Babylon would be judged. You know, Babylon had a reputation for drunken orgies and violence, and they were perverting other nations to be like them. 
God was going to judge him in his time and in his way. The last woe described in Habakkuk deals with idolatry. Verses 18 and 19. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. It's a warning against idolatry, friends. And this may actually be worse than the other sins that are listed previously because this is a complete abandonment of God. It is exchanging the truth about God for a lie. The lie being... Letting anything, something man-made, an image or whatever, replace the God of creation. Now again, we may be tempted to say, whew, dodged another one. I don't, I don't have any statues in my house. I don't have Buddha or Vishnu or anything like that. I don't bow down to any statues. But the truth, friends, is this. Anything that dominates your life and takes the place of God is an idol. It's an idol. Money, power, pleasure, possessions, relationships, job, all of those things can be an idol if you place them before the God of creation. Friends, idols, and really false religion is what this speaks to, it can only teach lies. It can't give true guidance. It will be judged. Verse 20 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Once again, if you look in your Bible, you see that the word LORD is in all caps, meaning what? Yahweh, right? The ancient Hebrew word for God. The I am. The eternal, perfectly holy creator of the heavens and the earth. He is alive and reigns supreme over all the earth. He demands silence so that all will consider his awesome nature. As Psalm 46 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Friends, He is God and there is no other. So how does this help us today? Well, as we view the world through the lens of Scripture, what we see is that God will judge sin. He promised to deal with the sin and injustice within the nation of Judah and within the nation of Babylon, and He promises to deal with the sin and injustice in the world today. Those same sins 
that were rampant 2,600 years ago. Greed, injustice, violence, exploitation, idolatry. They're still rampant today. And, and when we stop to think about it, those are easy, right? I mean, judging those sins, that makes sense. That's, that's, that's easy. That seems right. Even if the judgment doesn't come quickly enough or in the way we anticipated. It just seems right. And friends, the same could be said about this tragedy that unfolded this past week in Texas. It would seem right that God would judge that violence and judge it harshly. If you recall, a couple of weeks ago, we quoted from Jeremiah 23, and I think it applies here as well. There it says, Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. Those children, those, those teachers, they were innocent. This seems really pretty straightforward, right? It seems right. But what about the kind of gray areas in our society today? Or are there actually gray areas? Well, there is a lot of debate about a lot of different subjects. We talked about one a couple of weeks ago. The debate raging about the unborn. And if you recall, we looked at that issue through the lens of Scripture. We used our biblical worldview. We looked at a number of passages of Scripture. And I think that it's absolutely clear that God does care about the unborn. Is abortion fair? Is it just? I'm not going to tell you what to say. I'm going to make you think on your own. Let me remind you what the Bible says, though. Psalm 139, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Psalm 51, You desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Jeremiah 1, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Isaiah 49, Before I was born, the Lord called me from my mother's womb. He has spoken my name. Friends, it seems to me, it seems to me in light of what we read here and in light of what we read in Habakkuk chapter 2, it would not be inaccurate to interpret Exodus 23 to be saying, Woe to those who kill the innocent and righteous. They will be judged. There's one more that uh, I just want to briefly talk about this morning. It's another one that... Um, there's, there's, there's much disagreement. Sometimes violent disagreement. And sadly, friends, it is a debate that rages within the church as well. It's a debate that is raging within our denomination right now, the Christian Reformed Church. And that is the issue of human sexuality. And friends, we could spend months, we could spend months 
digging in and talking about all that that term means there. Because these days, it goes so much further than just homosexuality or bisexuality. You know, you have all these initials, right? LBTQRSTUVWXYZ, you know. And, 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 and now you have things like polyamory. Polyamory, I mean, multiple partners, um, there is even such a thing, if you can believe this, friends, as fictosexual. You know what that is? Being attracted to fictional characters. People say they're fictosexual. There's a guy that actually married a hologram. I mean, is this madness? And, and all this talk of, of, of gender identity and gender fluidity and... and non-genderism, you know, and, and men having babies, and you can't call a woman a pregnant woman. It has to be a birthing person. You know, this is nonsense. This is madness. We would have to rewrite every biology book that's ever been written. But see, this is all a product of postmodernism. A postmodern worldview. Postmodernism tells you that there are no absolute truths in this world. Postmodernism tells you you are what you feel. It's all about your experience. It's all about your truth. You know, what may be true for you is not true for me. But friends, those two things cannot coexist. They are mutually exclusive. Somebody's got to be wrong. Our biblical worldview tells us that there are absolute truths and they're found where? Amen. So what does the Bible have to say about all this stuff? Well, let's take a look. Let's go back to the very beginning. Genesis 1, where God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything seen and unseen, the world and everything in it. And then in verse 27, we read this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Doesn't seem to be a lot of ambiguity there. I don't see any third category. I don't see any, you know, gender X or, you know, you may feel differently. No. And really what God is saying here is I created you to be who you are. I knit you together in your mother's womb. And God doesn't make mistakes. And any attempt to change that, I believe they refer to it as Gender reassignment surgery? I call it mutilating God's perfect creation. And now they want to do this with children? With children? Friends, I wanted to be a pirate when I was younger. Thank God my parents didn't schedule me for surgery to have an eye removed so I could wear one of those cool patches. You know, we joke about it, but, but this is incredibly, incredibly important. And I could go on and on and on, but you guys, you don't want that. 
let's just end with, with this because we need, we need a quick thought on marriage, okay? What does the Bible say about marriage? And this is straight from the mouth of Jesus, straight from God himself in Matthew 19. There the Pharisees are challenging Jesus on marriage. And Jesus says this. He says, haven't you read... So he's referring back to Genesis, the Old Testament. That at the beginning, God, the creator, made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. It seems pretty plain to me. Marriage is one man, one woman, a union ordained by God. Anything outside of that? Anything outside of that? I'm going to let you decide. So let's wrap this up really quickly. I've taken a lot of your time today. But friends, we look at the sin and injustice in the world, and not just those sins that we've listed today, but all sin and wrongdoing, and we know that God will judge it someday in his timing and in his way. In the meantime, in the meantime, what do we do? We just sit around and wait. Now, I know that our friend Habakkuk said, yes, you, you, you pray, you cry out to God, and you wait on his answer. But what is it that the world needs so badly today? What is lacking in all of these situations? It's God. It's God. Friends, the world needs God today as much as it did in Habakkuk's day, maybe even more. You know, you push God out of the equation, and what happens? Look at the nation of Judah. Judgment? Are we any different today? Are we any better? Probably not. I mean, we are all sinners, and we all struggle with sin. What the world needs today, friends, is the saving truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is our job to take it to them. That's our job. As Christians, as a church, it's our mission. It's right there on the wall. Our mission is to share the hope that is found only in Jesus Christ. It's our mission. And friends, if you, haven't, if you haven't done it yet, I invite you to join us on this mission. I invite you to join us. See, nothing is more important than sharing the truth. The truth that God cares, the truth that He is, in fact, fair. And in the end, God is right. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and praise you and thank you. Lord, we acknowledge you as the ultimate authority. And we know that all sin will be judged, Lord. 
and we confess our sins to you. Our only hope of forgiveness is through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And Father, you have called us to take that message to the world. And I pray that you would help us to be, to be true to that. And that we would be a people that would be on fire to share the truth about Jesus, the truth about you. Father, bless us in this endeavor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.